European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 39, Issue 1, Focus Issue on Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Heart Failure Subgroups, HFREF, HFMREF, HFPEF, with or without mitral regurgitation. Heart failure has recently undergone major changes, while heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HFREF, is declining due to effective revascularization of patients with acute coronary syndromes, the prevalence and incidence of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HFPEF, mainly characterized by diastolic dysfunction, is increasing due to aging Western societies. In between, there is a gap, and this has recently been filled in the most recent ESC guidelines on acute and chronic heart failure with the introduction of a novel category, i.e. HFMREF, or heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction. The future will tell if this category can survive the test of time. Of note, the reproducibility and precision of echocardiography, the most frequently used imaging modality in these patients, is not good enough to reliably categorize such patients. Furthermore, a sub-analysis of the TOPCAT trial suggests that HFMREF and HFREF might be comparable, at least in their responsiveness to heart failure drugs such as spironolactone. In a fast-track paper entitled Beta Blockers for Heart Failure with Reduced, Mid-Range and Preserved Ejection Fraction, an Individual Patient-Level Analysis of Double-Blind Randomized Trials, Deepak Kotecha and colleagues from the University of Birmingham College of Medical and Dental Sciences in Birmingham, UK, address this issue with an additional heart failure drug in 11 double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials employing an intention-to-treat analysis. In patients in sinus rhythm, beta blockers reduced all-cause and cardiovascular mortality compared to placebo, an effect that was consistent across left ventricular ejection fraction strata, except for those in the small subgroup with left ventricular ejection fraction more than or equal 50%. Left ventricular ejection fraction increased with beta blockers in all groups in sinus rhythm, except in those with a value of more than or equal 50%. In patients with atrial fibrillation, beta blockers increase left ventricular ejection fraction when below 50% at baseline, but did not improve prognosis. Thus, beta blockers improve left ventricular ejection fraction and prognosis for patients with heart failure in sinus rhythm with a reduced left ventricular ejection fraction. The data are most robust in HFREF, but similar benefit was observed in HFMREF. These relevant findings suggest that HFREF and HFMREF are just the same disease with different severities, and are put into context in an editorial by Douglas Mann from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, USA. Significant efforts are currently being undertaken to better quantify and eventually reduce functional mitral regurgitation in patients with chronic heart failure in the hope to improve prognosis. In their manuscript entitled 
refining the prognostic impact of functional mitral regurgitation in chronic heart failure, Georg Goliash and colleagues from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria assessed the impact of functional mitral regurgitation in HFREF under optimal medical therapy. They prospectively included 576 HFREF patients into their observational study with a median follow-up of 62 months. Severe functional mitral regurgitation was a significant predictor of mortality with a hazard ratio of adjusted 1.38 independent of clinical. Severe functional mitral regurgitation was associated with poor outcome in an intermediate failure phenotype of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, i.e. those with NYHA class 2, moderately reduced LV function, and within the second quartile of NT-pro-BNP. Thus, in a patient cohort under optimal medical therapy, the adverse prognostic impact of functional mitral regurgitation is predominant in those with an intermediate heart failure. Maladaptions of the peripheral circulation are importantly involved in the pathophysiology of aging, hypertension, atherosclerosis, and heart failure. Retinal vessel analysis represents a non-invasive and reliable method to study the microcirculation and endothelial function in the eye. In a further article entitled Retinal Microvascular Dysfunction in Heart Failure, Andreas Flammer and colleagues from the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland assessed the extent of retinal microvascular dysfunction in patients with chronic heart failure. In 74 patients with compensated chronic heart failure with HFREF, flicker-induced dilation of retinal arterioles was assessed. Flicker-induced dilation was significantly reduced in patients with HFREF compared to those with risk factors of healthy controls. Similar differences were seen for venular flicker-induced dilation. Of interest, flicker-induced dilation was less impaired in patients with dilated compared to ischemic cardiomyopathy. Impaired flicker-induced dilation was associated with echocardiographically estimated systolic pulmonary artery pressure and left atrial volume index. Thus, Flicker-induced dilation of retinal microvascular vessels is impaired in chronic heart failure, which may provide a new method to monitor microvascular abnormalities in heart failure. These findings are commented upon in a timely editorial by Giuseppe Mancia from the Milano Bicocca University in Italy. Rapid overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system and the beta-adrenergic receptor, in particular upon stress, leads to cardiac inflammation, a prevailing factor that underlies cardiac injury in infarction, heart failure, and peripartum cardiomyopathy. However, mechanisms by which acute beta-adrenergic receptor stimulation induce cardiac inflammation remain unknown. In a basic science article entitled IL-18 Cleavage Triggers Cardiac Inflammation and Fibrosis Upon Beta-Adrenergic Insult, 
Yu Yi Zhang and colleagues from the Peking University Third Hospital in Beijing, China, investigated the role of the inflammasome and interleukin-18 in cardiac inflammatory cascades upon beta-adrenergic receptor insult in C57BL-6 mice injected with a single dose of isoproteranol or saline. Isoproteranol, upregulated inflammasome-dependent activation of interleukin-18, but not 1-beta, and promoted early macrophage infiltration. In patients with chest pain, a positive correlation was observed between the serum levels of norepinephrine and interleukin-18. Genetic deletion of interleukin-18, or the upstream inflammasome NLRP3, significantly attenuated isoproteranol-induced chemokine expression and macrophage infiltration, as did interleukin-18 neutralizing antibodies. Moreover, blocking interleukin-18 early treatment markedly attenuated cardiac inflammation and fibrosis in response to isoproteranol. They therefore conclude that beta-adrenergic receptor activation activates inflammasome-dependent and interleukin-18, triggering cytokine cascades, macrophage infiltration, and pathological cardiac remodeling, while specific blockade of this pathway successfully prevents inflammatory responses and cardiac injuries. The translational value of these experimental findings is further discussed in a comprehensive editorial authored by Tanya Zeller from the University Heart Center in Hamburg, Germany. Patients with acute heart failure often require intensive care, including ventilation, due to respiratory failure. Non-invasive ventilation, i.e. the application of positive intrathoracic pressure through an interface, might be a novel, less invasive approach in the management of such patients, an issue that is addressed in a review entitled Indications and Practical Approach to Non-Invasive Ventilation in Acute Heart Failure by Josep Massip and colleagues from Barcelona in Spain. Non-invasive ventilation has been shown to be useful in the treatment of moderate to severe respiratory failure in several scenarios. There are two modalities of non-invasive ventilation. Continuous positive airway pressure and pressure support ventilation with positive and expiratory pressure. Appropriate equipment and experience is needed for pressure support ventilation, whereas continuous positive airway pressure may be administered without a ventilator, not requiring special training. Both modalities have been shown to be effective in acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema by a reduction of respiratory distress and the endotracheal intubation rate compared to conventional oxygen therapy, but the impact on mortality is less conclusive. There are no differences in the outcomes in the studies comparing both techniques, but continuous positive airway pressure is a simpler technique that may be preferred in low-equipped areas like the pre-hospital setting while pressure support ventilation may be preferable in patients with significant hypercapnia. The new modality, high-flow nasal cannula, seems promising in cases of acute heart failure with less severe respiratory failure. The selection of patients and interfaces, early application of the technique, 
the achievement of a good synchrony between patients and the ventilator, avoiding excessive leakage, close monitoring, proactive management, and in some cases mild sedation, may be warranted for a successful application of the technique. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.